You are listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast out of Wesley Seminary at Iowa. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Care. On Monday nights, you'll find him in prison. Every Monday from 6.30 to 8.30, our guest today and his friend Herb lead a Bible study for about 50 inmates at French Robertson Unit just north of Abilene, Texas. Now, when I first read that paragraph, I was automatically intrigued, and that intrigue uh, simply grew exponentially as I got into this book. Our book, our the book is "Reviving Old Scratch: Demons for the Devil, Demons and the Devil for Doubters and the Disenchanted," published by Fortress Press, and its author is our guest today. Joining us today is Dr. Richard Beck. Dr. Beck is professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Welcome, Richard. Hey, thank you. Excited to be with you. I thoroughly enjoyed the book, and I and I want to toss that out there. It was one that that you are trying to get into some really complicated things. So rather than jumping right into the complicated things, maybe we can just start with the book's title. So it's entitled "Reviving Old Scratch." Who is Old Scratch, and how did you hear about this title? Yeah, I did not know who Old Scratch was either. Um, I was introduced to Old Scratch or the name Old Scratch out of the prison. So as you mentioned, my my colleague, a chaplain colleague, Herb Patterson, and I were out at the prison one night. Herb's older than me, and uh, he's uh, from the South. And one night he was praying, and during his prayer, he prayed, uh, Lord, protect us from Old Scratch. And I had no idea who he was talking about. So after the prayer was over, I said, Herb, what did you say? And he said, uh, I, I prayed. Lord, protect us from Old Scratch. And I said, well, I have no idea who Old Scratch is. And he was shocked that I didn't know that expression. But um, apparently it is a common name for the devil in the South. And so Southerners like to refer to uh, the devil as Old Scratch. And so my publisher liked it, thought it was a funny story. (laughs) So he went with that as a title. Well, perhaps you not being familiar with the name of Old Scratch kind of illustrates the problem that you've picked up on. Uh, You write that the devil has fallen on hard times. And by this, you mean that the devil is not an object of belief anymore. It doesn't kind of occupy a central part of our theology or our experience. Uh, Why do you think it's important to talk meaningfully about the devil in this day and age? Well, I think Jesus is probably your best answer to that question. Uh, a lot of scholars, N.T. Wright is one, if your readers, listeners know N.T. Wright, who will argue that, that Jesus saw himself in a, in a fight or a struggle against the Satan. And, and so I think a lot of us are attracted to Jesus, obviously, and we want to understand how he saw the world and experienced the world. But that part of Jesus's worldview, kind of his vision of the kingdom of God in a struggle with the God of this world, as the New Testament describes Satan, is hard for modern, secular, you know, scientifically literate people to grab a hold of. It seems like when we think of the devil, we have this uh, vision of a guy in a red suit with a pitchfork and horns. And that vision seems increasingly out of place in, in modern culture. And a lot of Christians, I believe, are affected by that culture. They, they harbor doubts about whether or not a personal, literal devil exists. And so instead, we kind of place in the middle of that idea something a little bit more abstract. Uh, Satan is a, maybe a, um, a metaphor or some other force of evil. But we're not 
reading it literally much anymore. That's what the surveys suggest. Um, and so my book is trying to speak into that, that doubt that we have, because if it seems important to Jesus, it should be important to us. And yet we struggle with trying to understand exactly what this, what this devil represents, what the struggle we're being called to looks like, what spiritual warfare. I grew up with that language in my church, spiritual warfare, what spiritual warfare looks like for uh, modern Christians. And I think the other worry here, um, particularly from kind of mainline or progressive and liberal Christian audiences, is they, they worry about language of the devil. So it's not just that they're skeptical. It's that they worry that language of the devil or demon possession could go really, really wrong. They've seen people hurt with, by, and they've seen people demonized with that language. And so it's not just that it's hard for scientifically literate Christians to believe in, it's also kind of a moral worry that that language is really, really toxic and it might be best just left on the shelf. But my argument is that if you leave that on the shelf too long, then you find yourself divorced from what Jesus is doing in the Gospels. Yeah, it really seemed that you were trying to occupy a, a, a very difficult space between those who are, you know, the, the devil is, com they're completely disenchanted from the devil, and this is just something they kind of write off. And then those on the other side, that the devil might be a very simplistic uh, char character, a, a, very, a very simple character, and you really want de to delve into some of the, the complexity of it. Um, you, you write this, you say... Uh, does the devil exist? As in literally? I don't know. Maybe. I wouldn't rule it out. But I do know this. Something killed Jesus. Something real. And the Bible named it. Satan. The devil. Old scratch. The the adversary to the kingdom of God. Uh, I really appreciated kind of that, that willingness to delve into the complexity of this and and move beyond kind of spiritual warfare simply as social justice. So you say that uh, you're arguing that belief in the devil and spiritual warfare is more than social justice. Um, what else do you see spiritual warfare including? Yeah, well, one of the things that people tend to do with the devil and say, well, I don't know if a literal devil exists, but I do know there's evil in the world. And most of the evil we see around is is the evil of social injustices and oppression. And so people go, I don't know if there's a devil, but I do know there's plenty of darkness in the world that I need to be fighting against. And again, this is the social justice warrior move by most liberal and progressive Christians. And I agree with all that. I wanna be very clear. There's a social justice component to what this battle looks like. But if you reduce the battle with Satan, justice to social justice activism, I think two, two things can happen. The first of all, well, three things. One, if you reduce the battle with the Satan to social justice and you completely disenchant it, and by disenchant it, I mean I, you, you strip it of all supernatural or spiritual or metaphysical content, then all you've reduced the battle to is a battle of one group of human beings against another group of human beings, against the good guys, against the bad guys. And you end up committing the the sin that Ephesians is warning us about where our battle is not against flesh and blood. So a wholly disenchanted pursuit of social justice um, can quickly produce the dehumanization of others and enemies that we're trying 
you know, to avoid. I, the third bit about that is that the struggle against the Satan is not just solely the pursuit of justice, it's also the pursuit of love and even enemy love. And that deep spiritual struggle, I think if you watch Facebook or Twitter or a lot of activistic conversation online, there isn't a lot of call to love in all of that. And so that's the second piece about why we need to have a spiritual aspect to the struggle. Um, and then the third one is this sense that what really ails us uh, in the world and in America um, is a deep spiritual sickness, that these injustices that we see, that we might be able to maybe win the next election, but do we really think having um, a better president, as good as that might be, or a, or a different Congress, or do if we think we could pass a better law, that the deep spiritual sickness from racism, the classism, the sexism, the, all the other deep spiritual ailments, the moral ailments that affect our society, that those are going to be eradicated by a new policy or law. And so if you can't legislate yourself out of evil, then where else is that battle to be waged? And so the book is trying to kind of draw attention to the spiritual and moral ailment and fight the battle there as well as the activist battle. I've been reading a little bit about evil of late, and and one of the things that um, has really been resonating with me is the sense that that evil really has an aesthetic element. There's a there's an art form to it that is is beyond simply accidental occurrence. That there's there's some there, there's a sense of uh, design and and uh well like I said art art form to it art form to evil and I, I get the sense that being able to to name uh evil as the devil as Satan as old scratch that that there's a way that we kind of get at the mystery of evil when it's it's really tough to put our to get on the, at the mystery and the art form the aesthetic of evil when that's kind of still mysterious to us. Yeah I think we're we're talking about like looking at problems from the outside or the inside. So from the outside, I might see political oppression, but I was speaking before about kind of how that is driven by the inside, a spiritual sickness. And I think your point is right. On the outside, evil might have an allure, an attraction, an aesthetic to it. But by naming the spiritual side, we're, we're able to penetrate into the, the center or the interior of it. And the, the biblical language of that is called discerning the spirits. So we discern the spirits and try to understand what spiritual forces are at work in these all the different presentations that we're being exposed to because the bible is also kind of clear that the bible comes the, the devil comes to us as an angel of light it's it's coming to us as something attractive uh, evil doesn't normally knock on your door you know as a dark monster it's usually going to appeal to the better angels of your nature most people who commit great evils in the world actually think they were doing good at the time and, and so trying to unravel that moral confusion is a large part of what spiritual warfare involves. Hmm. Yeah, I, th I think uh, when, I'm, when I'm describing evil as an aesthetic, I'm trying to also get at that there's, there's a way that impersonal forces could not produce what we actually consider and experience as evil. That it, it's so, it, it's... Uh, it has such a knowledge of how to create misery that there there seems to be this personal element to it. Not that it's necessarily attractive and that we're drawn to it, although sometimes we are, but also that it's hard to describe evil without it becoming personal because it, it appears to have such a design and such a, a, a pinpointed attack, a, pin, a, a, a drive to make 
misery, a drive to make miserable those who are the objects of its attack. Oh, yeah. No, I agree with that. I think there's definitely we get a sense of some design or intelligence behind it all. And, you know, like a lot of us feel pursued and hunted even. Hmm. This isn't just an accidental cause. You know, bad things just accidentally happen. But a lot of us feel hunted and pursued. And so when you talk to like the guys out of the prison I ministered to on Monday nights, right, they they feel um, evil is hunting them. Like they Hmm. feel uh, oppressed and and it's, it's the image of uh, in the Genesis story where, where sin is described as crouching, like this presence that's crouching at your door waiting to attack you. And I think even people might want to debate the metaphysics of what we're describing here. But as far as our lived experience is concerned, yeah, we feel like we're struggling against something that has intelligence and agency. And that's malevolence, that it is out to thwart us. And many of us feel ha- haunted by that you know, for large portions of our lives. While uh, perhaps our, our listeners might might be thinking, boy, that kind of feels kind of out there or that feels kind of abstract, even though it's trying to wrestle with existential realities, the actual lived the experience of suffering and fear. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about the book is how it is deeply grounded in ministry and specifically in in local church and the relationships that are, are really only possible because of, of people coming together in the worship of God and Jesus Christ, uh, perhaps more or less intentionally so. Maybe some are, are drawn uh, for less conscious reasons. Uh, but you really, you really argue for the importance of the local church. Talk to us a little bit about that. Um, why is the local church so important to you? Well, I think to, to go to the Gospels again, there's that there's that curious passage where Jesus gives his tells his followers that he's going to go to Jerusalem and die on the cross. And after he says that to his followers, I'm going to go lay my life down, donate my life in love. Peter says, you know, no, that's not going to happen. And Jesus wheels on Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. I think if we use that as a kind of the fundamental regulating understanding of what spiritual warfare represents, that Jesus is making a call to cruciform sacrificial love and that the Satan, the adversary, the opponent, is everything in our lives that is calling us away from that, then, then I think we're on really safe ground. It's not that far out anymore because we all know there's all sorts of things in our lives that are pulling us away from cruciform love. The connection to the church comes in is that a lot of us like to love um, from a distance. We don't like this sweaty, intimate um, dailiness of living in close community with other people. And uh, I like a quote, I use a quote from Jean Vanier um, from the La Arche communities. And he says this, and to me it's like the quote that makes the local church really, really important. And it's this, he goes, when we're alone, we think we can love everybody. And I think that is the classic description of what happens with social media. When we're sitting in front of our screens, and we're writing and tweeting and posting and reposting things about all the things that are going on in the world. We, we kind of get this surge of like, I'm loving the world well because I've used my screens well to promote the right causes. But then we find ourselves struggling and just getting along with our neighbors. And so for me, I don't think love is real until it's, until it's hard, until it's face to face with people that are very, very different from I am. 
And that's to me where the magic of the local church happens, that love has to be lived out at an address. And if it's not living out at an address or at a particular zip code in a particular neighborhood, in a particular city, with a particular group of people that make promises of commitment to each other. And we all know how hard church is to get along with people, just, just to get along. And yet that's what Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to make promises to each other and stay faithful to each other and to be unified to practice peacemaking with each other, to forgive each other 70 times seven, to wash each other's feet. Um, and, and so to me, this, this kingdom of God has to have an address. Hmm. It, it can't, not a hashtag. Hmm. And the address is the local church. And that's where the revolution takes place. Um, and it's not the revolution a lot of us thought we were signing up for. A lot of us would rather have the heroic, the heroic experience but the experience of living love out at an address with a group of people, that kind of almost monastic discipline to stay faithful to a place and to a people. Um, I, I think that's where the kingdom of God is experienced and celebrated. Richard, one of the sections of the book that stood out to me, and I want to ask you about it to kind of, give you a chance to speak wisdom into the life of our listeners. Uh, You've just described um, the difficulty of love and our desire to love. You've described uh, earlier in the podcast, uh, when we don't use the language of spiritual warfare and the devil, how easy it is to apply that kind of attitude to our enemies. Um, But when we're uh, clear and careful about using that language as as the Bible uses it, then we we won't apply it to our our enemies who we are called to love. Yet some of our our listeners have been active in loving and loving and loving, and they're they're wearing out and they're they're wearing down. Um, you describe this situation after the death of a, a patient that um, you had been uh, serving uh, in a hospital. Um, you write this. You said, though I wasn't aware of it at the time, I started losing my faith during those years in the hospital. The suffering overwhelmed me. My heart was broken, and God didn't seem to care. During the years I was writing in the journal, I stopped praying, and I didn't pray again for many years. It's no accident that my faith faltered during the years I wrote poetry in that journal. Compassion can erode our faith. Compassion is what draws us to Jesus and to the suffering of the world, but the pain we encounter there places an enormous burden upon our faith. We scream to the heavens, where are you, God, in the midst of all this pain? Don't you see? Don't you care? I, I want to invite you to to speak to people who they might be at that kind of position where maybe they're in spiritual leadership uh, officially in an office or not. Um, you know, maybe they are a Christian and they and they've lived their faith out uh, in society and in their relationships, but they are finding themselves coming to that spot of of being faced with that kind of suffering and just wondering if they're losing their faith. What would you say to the person that's in that position? That is a huge question um, with lots of pastoral aspects to it. So I'll say two quick things. And the fact that they have to be quick is, is that breaks my heart. But um, I'll say the first thing is one of, one of the frustrating things about scripture when it talks about evil is it just doesn't give us an explanation for it. And, and, and so we ask these kind of why questions and we can bang our heads against the wall. But what the Bible does give us, it kind of, we kind of step onto the stage and, and suffering and pain is already 
in play. That's when Jesus steps into his ministry in Galilee, he doesn't ask why there are all these suffering people out there. He just sees the ache and the hurt and he moves with compassion. And I think that's what we're called to do. The only, the way I say it in the book is this, the only theodicy we have um, is resistance. That said, um, that resistance can take a toll on us. And I think that's the other aspect of why we need to approach this problem spiritually, because without practices of worship and thanksgiving, of communion with God, that, that if ministry is just the effort to alleviate the suffering of the world, and we are untethered from grace and joy and God's peace and his abiding peace, then we will burn out. Hmm. And, and so, so a large part of the spiritual battle is to keep it spiritual. It, it's not to just pour yourself out because you're an amazing lover of the world and you're giving everything because you will empty yourself as a finite creature. And so I would argue that for that person, a season of spiritual renewal and restoration is the way they fight the battle against evil in the world. Hmm. Because if evil burns another pastor out, then evil wins. Right? Hmm. That's one more foot soldier out of a local church because they burnt out. They burned quick and hot out of seminary, and then they became disillusioned and cynical. So we have to keep the battle not just about our efforts and our actions and our agendas and mission statements and our training and our expertise and our own compassion. We have to we have to stay keep a vibrant spiritual life with God to make that sustainable for the long faithfulness of ministry. You're playing this out over decades in a lifespan, and you have to be connected to your source of spiritual sustenance. And to me. That is fighting the devil, uh, perhaps in its most intimate locations in our hearts. I find it so helpful, uh, and you and you go into this in in the life of Jesus over and again. Is that it's precisely that Jesus has won a victory that we could not, that he came, and part of that is your book is is very missional, or right? it's very, and you've used the the phrase of boots on the ground and and the importance of. Uh, we address evil not simply philosophically, but more so behaviorally, uh, and to remind ourselves that we aren't simply agents of salvation, though by God's Holy Spirit in the power of Christ we we are that. He does He does so often work through the local church, but we're also objects of salvation, and we needed saving. That uh, this is a, a problem that's beyond our ability to solve, and it has been addressed and won in Christ. And uh, how important for us to maintain that that posture of humility. And posture of praise and worship and and honor that we have been called into this glorious kingdom of light. Um, once we were not a people, but now we are a people by by the victory of Jesus. Yeah, I mean, what is the perhaps the greatest act of spiritual resistance in our time and age is hope. Hmm. And hope is fundamentally hope is fundamentally a spiritual metaphysical framework. Uh, you lose the supernatural. If you completely disenchant the pursuit of justice, then um, you lose Dr. King's vision of, you know, the arc of history bending toward justice. You lose hope. And once you lose hope, um, then there, there's just despair. 
And so, and that's a spiritual struggle. Yeah. You're not going to get hope from your politics and you're not going to get it from, you know, human beings. It has, it has to be a, a supernatural gift that you're given. Mm. Um, and so fighting for hope in the midst of despair, I think is a profoundly, um, a profound act of spiritual warfare. I mean, and I deal with that every Monday night at the prison. Uh, guys that have been in prison for years, some have life without parole. Uh, what, what happens to the human psyche if they aren't given hope and we just, we just curl, curdle like sour milk. I mean, we, it's almost like you, let me phrase it this way. Um, human beings are eschatological creatures. We, we have to have hope for human flourishing, which means by definition to be a human being is to be religious. We, we just require it. We need to project ourselves into the future. And, um, and I think spiritual warfare is that impossible hope that mm. we cultivate in ourselves and our faith communities. Yeah, I, I love, I, I want to leave that as the last word uh, with this encouragement that, and, and perhaps as a caution, but uh, that when we find our hope waning, it might be time to, to take a, a look at how we've been fighting and uh, to examine kind of where our spiritual tanks are at, so to speak, and and how we can re uh, reacquaint with the Savior and as being objects of salvation, um, because He does aim to to fill us with hope. And of course, hope is one of the the great theological virtues, along with faith and love. Uh, hope is a very important indicator for the uh, our ability to fight in the moment with energy and and valor and strength. Uh, joining us today has been Dr. Richard Beck. He is the author of Reviving Old Scratch, Demons and the Devil for Doubters and the Disenchanted, published by Fortress Press. I encourage you to uh, look up that resource and I hope, and I think it will be a source of hope to you. Uh, and I hope this podcast has been as well. Thank you mu so much, Richard, for joining us today. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. And we hope that you'll take a chance to listen to other Wesley Seminary podcast listeners and uh, access them for encouragement and renewal and some uh, training as well. Thank you so much for joining in and have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.